You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning. Um, my name is Lauren Hensterling. I serve here as a GC leader and on the communion team. So today we're going to be reading Matthew 2, 1 through 12. So if you'd open your Bibles and turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats in front of you. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lauren. Good morning, church. My name is Eric Overton, and it is great to be with you today. I'm just going to say briefly that my wife Haley and my three kids, Calvin and Vivian and Olive, are here as well, and I love you guys and could not do what I do if it wasn't for your support. For all the rest of you, I need you to laugh at my jokes and make me look good. Uh, so that they will feel like their sacrifice is worth it. For those of you who don't know, Shea Sumlin, our lead teaching pastor, is out on a well-deserved sabbatical following five years of ministry here at Northway Church, so I am blessed with the opportunity to preach to you today. And before you get your expectations set too high, I did want to tell you that I graduated college 20 years ago with an undergraduate degree in finance, so buckle up. This morning, we are continuing our Advent series and are looking at Jesus through the eyes of the wise men from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So if you didn't get out a Bible uh, when Lauren just read the scripture, I would invite you to do that now. If you don't have one with you or on your phone, there's one under the seat in front of you. Um, So please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. And if you have spent any time in church... My guess is that you are familiar with this story, and even if you didn't grow up in a church, my guess is that you have also heard this story before. You see, this story has found its way out of Scripture and into the culture of Christmas in America, and this is the story of the wise men's journey to meet the young Jesus. However, most of what you probably know about the journey of the wise men to meet the young Jesus is not in the text that I am preaching from today. My guess is if you take a minute and think about what you know about the wise men, you will be drawn quickly to a Christmas song, a Christmas book, or the nativity set that's sitting out somewhere in your home as part of your Christmas decorations. 
Whenever I was first asked to preach on Jesus through the eyes of the wise men, I knew I wanted to preach a very different sermon from most of the sermons I've been exposed to on this topic. Not because any of those sermons are bad at all, but because I'm just a little bit different. And over all my years in church, I can recollect many sermons that mentioned the wise men, and they usually focused on trying to explain what was going on during the story and how certain aspects of this story may have taken place. As a matter of fact, a great deal of time, study, and thought has gone into trying to explain to us who these wise men were, where they came from, and what guided their journey along the way. And then when they get here, even more work has been done trying to give them names and explain the gifts they brought to Jesus. And if I wanted to, I could probably preach this entire sermon trying to explain to you what the star was that guided their way along their journey. But I'm not going to do any of that today. Today, I'm going to give you three things to think about that I pray will change this holiday season for you. But even before we jump into the text today, I want to upend your preconceived notions of this story and ask you a very simple question. How many wise men were there? Three, you say. Are you sure? Are you positive? Okay, that's great. Please show me in what verse the infallible word of God says there were three wise men, because it's not in there. We know there were more than one because plain English translates men as plural, and you could rightly assume that there would be more than one, but the text never says that there are three. Your nativity set has three, and the Christmas hymn, We Three Kings, has three, but the Bible does not have three. The idea that there were three is probably extrapolated from the three gifts in verse 11, but nowhere in the passage are we told explicitly that there were three, and this is just the first of many of your fond childhood memories of this story that I may destroy today. (laughs) And in order to be faithful to my task as a preacher of the Word of God, I'm going to preach this sermon on Jesus through the eyes of the wise men, and I hope to give you three main takeaways, three main takeaways. However, I don't feel like I would be doing Pastor Sumlin justice if I didn't at least give a brief exposition of the verses before we get there. So starting in verse one, first things first, Jesus has been born in Bethlehem of Judea, and this is no small thing. The promised Messiah is now here in the flesh, and it has been 400 years since the events of Malachi have occurred. Pastor Jeff unpacked some of what happened historically during this intertestamental period two weeks ago, and if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. But now, after 400 years, Jesus Christ is born. And he's born in the days of Herod the king. And this gets a little confusing, and I'm not going to spend too much time on Herod. You see, Pastor Matt preached a great sermon on Jesus through the eyes of King Herod last week. So if you want to know more about him, I would encourage you to watch that. Now, who are these wise men? If you're reading the English Standard Version, which is the translation that I am reading, as well as the translation in the seat in front of you, the New Living Translation, the New King James, or the original King James versions of the Bible, you will see the words wise men in the text. And if you really are reading the original King James, or even the New King James, I have some questions for you, but we don't have time to get into that today. However, if you're reading the New International Version or the New American Standard Bible, you will see the word magi in the text. And the word magi is closer to the original word, which I cannot pronounce, and it doesn't take a lot of creativity to add a C on the end of the word and get the English word for magic, or take it one step further and even see the word as magician. And that is somewhat 
what these men were. However, they were so much more than mere magicians. They were more like ancient scientists who used astrology, meteorology, and other advanced studies of the natural order of things to explain the world around them. And I will say here that these kinds of studies then and even now do not have to be in conflict at all with the teachings of Jesus. Another thing you need to know about them that the early readers of Matthew would have explicitly known is that these men were not of Jewish origin and would be what we would consider Gentiles, just like you and me. When it comes to who the wise men were, the first thing we are faced with in the passage is where they came from. And again, much has been conjectured about this topic, but all we are told explicitly in the text is that they came from the east. And since I am not Shea, I will not be showing you a map, but if you have a map, in the back of your study Bible or want to look at this later, as long as the map has Cardinal North pointing up, all you do is look to the right, and that is where you will see the area that is from the east. So historically and geographically speaking, these wise men probably came from somewhere in the Persia, Arabia, and or Babylonian area, and people will point to the frankincense and myrrh that were given as gifts, being generally from these areas, but again, we aren't specifically given that in the text. In this coming fall, we're going to have a sermon series on the book of Daniel, and I don't want to steal anyone's thunder from that, but it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to see how the wise men could have learned about the coming of the Messiah from the teachings passed down from Daniel, who was taken to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar some 600 years earlier. Daniel 1.17 says, as for these four youths, of which Daniel was one, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And a couple of verses later, we learn that the king tests these youths in matters of wisdom and understanding and finds them to be 10 times better than all of the magicians and enchanters in his kingdom. In verse two, we're told why these magi have made this journey when they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They made their journey in order to find and worship Jesus. And this is one of the major themes of this text and one of the main three things I want you to take with you from here, and I will get that uh, into that a little bit more later. But did you really pay attention to the question that was asked? They asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Not where is he who will one day be king of the Jews, or where is he who will grow into the king of the Jews, or where is he who, when his father passes away, will inherit the title, the king of the Jews. But specifically, where is he who was born king of the Jews? You see, the wise men knew, these magi knew, that the person they were looking for was born a king. Jesus, unlike any of the Jewish kings before him, was born a king. So if you watch the crown, which I do not, but my wife does, you know that most kings are not born. Princes are born, and assuming they live very upright lives or their parents pass away unexpectedly, then they become kings, but they are certainly not born kings. And this is why Charles Wesley wrote in the 1744 hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, these words, which I will not sing to you, born thy people, to deliver, born a child, and yet a king. Because Charles Wesley knew what the Magi also knew, and that is that Jesus was born as a king. And then we have the star, 
Oh, the star. You see, I could spend the next 45 minutes talking to you about the star. Last year over Christmas break, Haley and I took our kids to Louisville, Kentucky, so we could go see the Ark Encounter. It was a great trip, so much fun and really uh, impressive. Spoiler alert though, that is not the real Ark. However, while we were there, we watched a video in a cool planetarium room where the seats lean real far back and you look up at this screen and it's made to imagine that you're looking up at the sky. And we watched a video about the star and the video was really well done and it was very interesting and not a thing in the video came from this passage. All we were told in the passage was it was his, capital H, star, meaning Jesus, and some possible theories on the star, in case you were wondering, or that the star was a natural planetary conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, that the star was really a sighting of Halley's Comet, or that the star was a supernova. We aren't told, and I'm not sure that it really matters. I personally think the star was a miraculous occurrence, a manifestation from God to guide the Magi to this spot so they could be the first of the Gentiles to worship a born Jesus, but that is just my opinion. Moving quickly along in verse three, we're told that Herod the king, lowercase k, hears these questions and was troubled, and I bet you that he was. You see, Herod was a very bad man and had grown increasingly paranoid in his life. And we know from extra biblical history that out of his paranoia, Herod had his wife and two of his sons killed because he saw them as a threat to his throne. So he is not very happy at all that these magi from the east are asking questions in Jerusalem about the birth of the king of the Jews, which ironically was a title that Herod had already given to himself. And this idea that Jerusalem was troubled with him at the end of verse three should be interpreted to mean that they were troubled more because Herod was troubled rather than being troubled because of the questions that were being asked by the magi. Think about like this, if there's kids in a classroom or if you dare your own living room being troubled when the teacher or mommy or daddy are unusually angry and their anger at something else may result in more work, stricter rules and less privileges being doled out, not because anything that they did, but as a result of anger that was caused elsewhere. So Herod then gathers all of the chief priests and the scribes and tries to ascertain where the Christ was to be born. And these religious men, quote for him straight out of Micah chapter five, verse two, which pulls from Genesis, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah, and they tell him where the Christ is to be born. And there wasn't much of a secret to this prophecy, but it is another example of prophecy fulfilled. And then we read in verse seven that Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and this meeting was clearly done in secret so that he can know what age babies he will later need to kill in chapter two, and we should clearly see through this that one, Herod is crazy, and two, like Matt preached last week, he saw Jesus as a legitimate threat to his illegitimate throne. Then in verse four, Herod sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. We know that Herod has absolutely no intention whatsoever of going to worship Jesus because Herod is crazy and is planning on going to Bethlehem to eliminate this threat to his artificial earthly monarchy. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star they had seen when it rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And now we're back to the guiding star, which is said to rise and go before them 
to come to rest over the place where the child was. You see, this is no ordinary star and seems now even more unlikely to me to be an uncommon astrological occurrence. Rather, it seems more like a supernatural phenomenon, which in no way would be at odds with the author and creator of the universe's plans for the revealing of his son born in the flesh for the salvation of the world. And notice here that neither Herod nor anyone in his direct charge, nor any of the chief priests or the scribes or the people go with the wise men on this journey. They are told that the king of the Jews has been born, but nobody else goes to see him. Just like many people are told today that Jesus is the king, and yet they refuse to go and see him. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So these are the three things that I have been waiting to say all morning. And these two verses are the main points of this Advent sermon. And my hope is that they change your next 15 days. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down and you will have done your job for the sermon today. So the wise men have just started on a six mile journey after undertaking a journey that could have been over 600 miles. To give you some context, 600 miles east of here is Montgomery, Alabama and Pensacola, Florida. However, I trust that because you are here this morning and not running the Dallas Marathon that you don't appreciate a long and difficult journey. (laughs) But imagine for a moment that you were told that the savior of the world has been born. How long of a journey would you go on to meet him? What would you be willing to give him when you got there? What would you sacrifice in your own life to meet this person? Just like running, a marathon is difficult to people who do it will tell you that it's worth it. And the wise men knew that their journey would be difficult, but they also knew that it would be worth it. So the points of my sermon are as follows. Number one, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. You see, to rejoice is to feel joy or great delight. And this is an action and a feeling all wrapped up into one. It is an inward emotion that overflows into action, and it is a very conscious thing. This is not something that is reactive, it is proactive. And I'll get to that more in a moment. Also, we were told that they rejoiced exceedingly. And so to rejoice exceedingly is to express joy to an extreme degree. You see, this isn't mere happiness or a warm hug. This is something that you feel in your soul and it is difficult to imagine or explain. And this is what the wise men do when they see the star. This is what Jesus is later trying to teach us when he says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, it would be very easy here to link them rejoicing exceedingly with seeing Jesus, but that is not what the text says and not what I'm trying to tell you today. The wise men rejoice exceedingly when they see the star. And the star is not their destination, but it helps them to know they are on the right path. And the star is not their object of worship, but it is a visual reminder of why they are making this long and difficult journey and what the treasure is that lies ahead. You see, the star is just the star. So this Christmas season, I want to give you the freedom, the permission, and the encouragement to see every light hung up on a house or in a tree is a sign that on December 25th, we're going to celebrate something amazing. Any star or light you see during this time, or really at any time, can be a sign 
that in 15 days, there is a holiday that historically speaking, probably isn't even Jesus's real birthday, but it's being celebrated all over the world by Christians and non-Christians alike. And the star or the lights are not the object of our salvation, but they are pointing to the person who is. So if you haven't already done so and you wanna go to Walmart and buy all the Christmas lights that are left and go full on Clark Griswold on your house, you do so for the glory of God. Just don't fall off your roof. You want some other ideas? Rejoice, rejoice, and again, I say rejoice. Do you see what I did there? I know most of you cannot sing, but don't let that stop you from experiencing the joy that can be found in the theological depths of Christmas songs like Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Emmanuel, and so many others. Point number two, great joy. When they saw the star, the wise men rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So this new journey begins with the wise men rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. First, what is joy? And this might seem like a silly question, but I feel like in today's culture, I need to deconstruct a little bit what joy means. You see, my fear is that when I say joy, you think happiness. But when I say joy, I do not mean happiness at all. You see, I care, I care so very little about your happiness, but I care exceedingly for your joy. To understand joy, I wanna tell you first what joy is not. Joy is not how you feel the moment to moment as you go on about your day. Joy is not the state of mind you are in when you're driving your car, running errands, and your joy is not ruined when you spill your coffee on your dress pants when you get in your car to drive to work early in the morning. James 1.12 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You see, I need to unpack what joy is because I don't think we, me included, naturally would think we should experience joy when we are in trials of various kinds. It is not natural to be in the middle of walking through your first Christmas without a loved one here or walking through Christmas with a loved one who is sick and think I should feel joy. When Haley and I woke up Christmas morning 13 years ago and heard complete silence instead of the baby that we had so desperately been praying for, we didn't naturally feel happy. But joy is what we had. We felt sadness, and make no mistake about it, we felt sadness, but we had joy because God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, had given us the free gift of our salvation in Jesus Christ, and we had joy. Matt said in his sermon last week that the more we believe God loves us, the more we will trust him. And I think that is a great analogy for joy. The more that we believe God loves us, the more joy we will feel. You see, God is the source of our joy and his love for us is fuel to the fire in our hearts. So if you are struggling to find joy this holiday season, ask yourself, do I believe that God loves me? Do you truly believe it? Romans 15, 13 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You see, hope and joy are so very closely linked. And 1 Peter 1, 6 says, in all this you rejoice greatly, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. Anyone out there rejoicing greatly that they are suffering?
Now that you hopefully know what joy is not, what is great joy? What does great mean? Again, here, I don't think our current language quite does this justice. And when I say great joy, my fear is that we translate that into our minds and hearts as a lot of happiness, or at best, a lot of joy. And I hope you followed me and we're on the same page that joy is not mere happiness. And when it says great, here Matthew isn't measuring joy solely by its quantity. Let me rewind briefly to August 4th, 2019. On August 4th, 2019, I preached my first sermon ever at the Village Church, Dallas Northway. And I preached that sermon in a sanctuary that is now in a landfill. And I preached that sermon on the betrayal, arrest, and subsequent trials of Jesus. It was not the best topic for your first sermon ever. And it was not great, but that doesn't help us to understand what great means, so why am I talking about this? Well, I'll tell you why. You see, when I put the microphone on that morning, our illustrious worship minister, Josh Duncan, asked if I wanted to turn the microphone on myself before preaching or if I wanted the production crew to turn it on remotely. And figuring that I would be sweating and shaking, I thought it best that the production team turned it on remotely so I could focus on breathing and not passing out. And unbeknownst to me, when, you, when they ask you if you want them to turn on the recording for you, they do a really good job and turn it on well before you were set to take the pulpit to preach. So they turned on the recording of my sermon right in the middle of me singing with a heavenly host of angels, the classic Northway tune, Lamb of God. And Josh Duncan thought it would be humorous and uplifting to take a snippet of my singing, Lamb of God, and text it to me and Matt Younger the following week. And I am here to tell you today that my singing was not good. It was not good at all. It was so not good that if I ever find out that Josh sends it to anyone else, his only hope at still working here is his sweet wife and their adorable child. It was so not good that on occasion, when I can tell my brother needs to be cheered up, I will play it for him and listen to him laugh, a deep, long belly laugh like he was watching Talladega Nights for the first time. It was so not good that I asked Josh afterwards if he wanted me to join the choir, and he just looked at me and said, dog, <laughs> whatever that means. And even just to give you one more quick example that's not in the notes here, it was so bad that after I preached the nine o'clock, I was at the very back singing and a guy turned to me and said, that microphone's not on, is it? And I, and I said, no, it's not on. So what I'm saying is that my singing was not good. I don't think it was good at all. I think that it was great. What does that mean? You see, I'm not saying it is great as measured by its quality or amount or on a scale of how it compares to pretty much anyone else's vocals anywhere in the world. I think it was great because in that moment before I was going to preach, I had done more reading and praying and crying out to God for help over the preceding days trying to prepare for that sermon than I had done in such a long time. And I was preaching on the trials of Jesus who was killed not only for the forgiveness of sins, but the forgiveness of my sins. And so when it was time to sing Lamb of God, I was rejoicing exceedingly with great joy that Jesus was put on trial and executed for me. And I was going to sing that to the glory of God. And in that moment, I don't think God heard my voice and thought it was good because he knows he didn't give me vocals to sing. But I do think God heard my heart 
and thought it was great because he knew that I was so overcome with joy that the words coming out of my mouth were the overflow of what was in my heart, and what was in my heart was a burning fire for the love of Jesus. See, when it says great joy, I take it to mean that it has value above anything else. It is great because it is worthy and it is valuable. Not because it is loud or visible or quantifiable or more than someone else's, but because it's the overflow of what is in the heart. It's the same thing that causes Jesus to say later in Luke 21 that the woman who put two small copper coins had given more than anyone else because she gave so much from the so little that she had. See, joy doesn't mean forcing happiness during times of sadness, but in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, joy is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Point three, verse 11, they fell down and worshiped him. The journey is complete. They are finally here to see the baby who has been born, the king of the Jews and the savior of the world. They have found what they have been searching for and their hearts rejoicing exceedingly with great joy have no other option than to fall down and worship. They rejoiced at the sight of the star and now they worship at the feet of the baby. I feel pressed here a little bit to talk about bowing. Bowing is not something that is common in our culture, but it was more common at this time, and people would bow in the presence of rulers or kings or as a sign of worship. And Mary is a Jew, would have known when bowing was appropriate and when it simply should not happen. And if you listen to any Vody Bauckham sermons on angels, he will always say the two most common things angels say in scripture are do not be afraid and get up. The first is obvious. If I saw an angel, I'm sure fear would be a pretty natural response, but the second one took me a minute. Get up. Does that mean that people were so afraid they fell down? No, you see, there are people who would bow at the sight of angels thinking they should worship them, but the angels will not have it. The book of Revelation even tells us that when John attempts to bow at the feet of an angel, he is admonished and told to get on his feet. But here, Mary says no such thing and appropriate worship of the king happens. We will all face this moment at some point in our lives, and some of us many times. Some of you already have. We are in search of something, and that something has to have meaning. And we may have questions like, why am I here, or what is the point, or who really loves me? And the only real response to any of those questions is found in complete submission to and worship of Jesus. You are here because Jesus made you. In his image, he made you. He knit you together in your, mother's, in your mother's womb and he put you on the earth to experience abundant life in him. You see, John 10.10 10 does not say, I came so that you may live a difficult and miserable life on earth, but if you believe in me, one day you will go to heaven. We know that we will face trials, and I don't ever want to tell you that if you believe in Jesus, you won't have top trials or that only good things will happen to you. There is prosperity in the gospel, but a gospel of only prosperity for believers is a lie from the pit of hell, if I can say that in church. You see, John 10.10 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And this abundant life happens now and in eternity. If you have Jesus in your heart, you have everything you will ever need 
in your life. To be clear, abundance does not mean having money or possessions. Abundance in the Christian experience means knowing you've been given a gift so priceless that nothing else in this earth could ever compare. I heard a saying once that I've never been able to shake. It is that some people are so poor that all they have is money. Can you imagine? And with all this talk about Christmas lights and presents and earthly abundance and joy in this life, I want to insert a brief note of caution. You see, God made things good. We remember in the creation account of Genesis that all the things God made were called good, but then sin entered the world and fractured everything. So Christmas lights are good, but if you care more about having the best-looking house in the neighborhood than you do about spreading the joy and wonder of Christ, then you have missed the point. And good food is good and wine is good, but if those things are more or if you are more worried about delivering the perfect meal at the perfect time on Christmas morning instead of celebrating the birth of Christ, then you are missing the point. And even Christmas presents are good, whether it's a small thing that you made yourself because of a lack of material resources or an extravagant gift that you were so excited to share with a loved one, gifts are good. But if we're honest, we can feel a little bit empty when we open presents on Christmas morning only to feel we're missing something in our life by January. The book of Romans cautions us against worshiping the the creature or the created over the creator. It's a lot of C's there. And this is my caution to you. Worship the creator of all things and not the created small things. Now we get to talk about the gifts. Again, there have been volumes written about these gifts, what they were and what they symbolize, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The first one is not really that hard. We know gold, we know what gold is and we understand the value that it has and whatever you think of it today, know that it was even more valuable and more meaningful in Jesus's time. The next two, not so much. I would seriously doubt if frankincense and myrrh are on anyone's Christmas list. Frankincense isn't on mine because I can't spell it and I can't smell, but it's an aromatic substance like incense would be today. And then there's myrrh with two R's. That's another substance that's used in perfume or medicine and most commonly used in embalming. Again, much is written on these gifts, and it's all good, but it's not the point of my sermon today. And then the last verse, we're about to land the plane. After rejoicing exceedingly with great joy, falling down and worshiping Jesus, and opening their treasures and giving gifts, the wise men are warned in the dream to not return to Herod, So they go another way back to their own country. And if you read the verses that follow this, we're told that an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt because Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And this fulfills a prophecy in Hosea that says, out of Israel, I called my son. And then Herod realizes he was tricked and has all the male children in Bethlehem that are two years old and younger killed. Merry Christmas, right? We're told in verse 16 that these toddlers were murdered according to the time that Herod had ascertained from the wise men. And this would have happened when he met with them secretly in verse 7. So to summarize what I would like to convey to you today, I want you to live like the wise men lived. And I want you to take what you've heard here today and remember these three things when you start your journey. I want you to see Jesus through the eyes of the Magi. So to summarize, point number one, rejoice exceedingly. Whether you're driving around looking at Christmas lights, singing Christmas songs or hymns, or spending time with family, or opening presents on Christmas morning, I want you to rejoice exceedingly. 
If you or a family member aren't feeling well, if you're without someone special on this holiday, or if you feel like there is something missing in your life, I want you to rejoice exceedingly. Because either way, you know the king. Point number two, I want you to experience great joy. In all that you do, I want you to experience great joy. And look at what you value in your life and ask yourself the question, does this bring me joy? Look at what you spend your time on and ask, does this bring me joy? And if you dare, look at your bank account and ask, does what I'm spending money on bring me joy? And point number three, bow and worship at the feet of Jesus. In some respects, this is not only the destination, but the journey the wise men were on and that we are on now. And by that, I mean that worshiping Jesus isn't something that we do and then go home. It doesn't mean coming to church on Sunday and then living out something completely different every other day of the week. See, Christmas Eve isn't a service that we have here so that we won't see you again until Easter. But worshiping Jesus will change the course of your life. And the reason that the wise men could rejoice exceedingly with great joy is the same reason we rejoice exceedingly with great joy today. They knew they were going to meet the King of the Jews and the Savior of the world. So church, what now? The first question that God asks after Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the forbidden tree in the garden is, where are you? God's first question isn't, why would you do that? Or how could you be so arrogant as to disobey the only rule I gave you? His first question to Adam and Eve when they sinned was, where are you? You see, even in rebellion, God wants to have a relationship with us. Now things are about to get really uncomfortable. I'm going to ask you the same question today. Where are you? Not where are you right now physically, but where are you with God spiritually? When I finish this sermon, we're going to take communion, and the communion lead is going to give you the speech that we give every single Sunday. They're going to tell you that the meal we are going to have is for believers in Jesus Christ. I'm going to jump the gun a bit and go ahead and ask you the question, where are you? Are you hiding in your sin and trespasses against God? If so, confess your sins. God tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confess today and be cleansed. Do you even believe in God? That is a really hard question to ask, but it might be the most important question that you're asked today. God's first question when we sin is where are you? But notice the first question that the wise men ask. The first question the wise men ask is where is he? Matthew 7, seven through eight says, ask and it will be given to you, seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For the one who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So just ask the question. Just ask where Jesus is, and God will answer. Pray with me. Dear God, I thank you for the time today to come and to preach and to share this time with this body. I just thank you for the beautiful weather that you've given us. And Lord, we know that you are good and we know that you love us. And even then saying that still amazes me. It is amazing to me beyond anything that I've ever received that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin in a manger and that he would later die for the forgiveness of not only sins, but the forgiveness of my sins and the sins of those that I love and the sins of everyone who he paid that penalty for. And so God, as we go about our holiday, 
that we go about the season, let us live like the wise men live. Let us search for wisdom and meaning and let us know and experience that that joy, that exceedingly great joy is found in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11, 15 a.m., and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.